We're continuing on in our series in Hebrews 11. And, and I guess the question I want to ask you as we begin this uh, next verse here, look, look at it, is have you ever had to take a risk in your obedience to God? Have you ever thought about the fact that the faith almost always involves a risk of some kind? You know, faith is a gamble uh, we take when we do something when we're not sure how the outcome is going to be. And, and if you're going to be obedient to God, if you want to be used by God, if you desire to be led by God, you're going to be required at some time to take a chance on God. And this morning, we're going to begin looking at the life of Moses. And, you know, as we talk about Moses, you realize that sometimes Moses is presented, like in the movies or other ways, by almost a superhuman man. But he's another man like you and I are people. You know, he's a real man. He struggles. Moses was a man who, despite lapses in his life, was a man who kept coming back to his position of believing in God and trusting him. And so Moses is another example of faith, another man who's trusted God in God's word. Well, we're not going to really talk as much about Moses this morning as we're going to talk about his parents, because his story begins with them. And so the people we're going to be looking at today are Amram and Jochebed, uh, Moses' parents. And we're going to be looking at one verse, uh, Hebrews eleven twenty three. And this verse tells us that by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Amran and Jochebed, uh, who were the parents not only of Moses but Miriam and Aaron as well, are two of the unsung heroes in Scripture. They aren't given a lot of press. In fact, is there's just one sentence dedicated to them here in this chapter. And their names aren't even mentioned. You have to get their names from uh, elsewhere in Scripture. And yet, these godly parents kind of set the stage for what was going to come after. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Now, to understand where we're going this morning, we have to go back to the Israelites and see how they ended up in Egypt, because the Israelites are in Egypt when uh, Moses' parents exercised faith. And so I'm going to recap a story that many of you are very familiar with, but we'll recap it anyway, just to give us the context for what's happening here. You'll remember in the story of Joseph how his brothers became jealous of him because his father kind of gave him preferential treatment. And so when they had an opportunity, they sold him into slavery to some Arabian merchants who took him to Egypt and sold him there as a slave. In Egypt, he was sold to a man by the name of Potiphar, who was one of the officials in Pharaoh's kingdom. And he did very well serving him, but... uh, Because of some false accusations on the part of Potiphar's wife, Joseph was thrown in prison for something he didn't do. And while there, he waited and waited, but eventually he had an opportunity to interpret some dreams of two officials who had been imprisoned by Pharaoh because they had offended him. 
And eventually, Pharaoh heard that there was someone in his prison who could interpret dreams, and he had had a really disturbing dream, and so he brought Joseph, and Joseph interpreted his dream. He told him that uh, in Egypt there would be seven years of abundance in terms of the harvest, followed by seven years of severe famine. And Joseph recommended to Pharaoh that he institute a program of preparation for the famine by storing grain. Pharaoh was convinced that that was the meaning of his dream, and he put Joseph in charge of carrying out this plan. Joseph rose in the ranks quickly. Uh, He became second in his position in all of Egypt. He was the prime minister of Egypt, in a sense. And sure enough, uh, the famine came as it was predicted, and Joseph was uh, distributing the goods to the people. But his family, who his parents didn't even realize he was alive anymore, but his family was sent to Egypt because they didn't have food where they were at, and, and they needed food, and Egypt was a place that had food. And so they went there, and Joseph saw them, and in spite of what his brothers had done to him, Joseph gave them the food they needed, and eventually he moved his family to Egypt and gave them some of the prime land in Goshen and allowed them to settle there, and they moved and lived right by Egypt. We're told in Exodus 1, 5 through 7, that when they came to Egypt, in all, Jacob had 70 descendants, including Joseph, who was already there. And in time, all of his brothers died, ending that entire generation, so you're moving to the next generation, But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. So part of the prophecy to Abraham is starting to be fulfilled now. They're multiplying. They're filling the land. And from that small band of people, that family of 70 people, they they grew into a, a nation probably in excess of 2 million people. We're told that eventually a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. And he said to his people, look, the people of Israel outnumber us and are stronger than we are. So we have to make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join and fight against us and they will will escape from the country. And so the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. So Pharaoh's first plan to diminish the Israelites' numbers and influence them was to enslave them and tighten his control over them. This plan was to intimidate them and oppress them and demoralize them and make them subservient. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, we're told, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread and alarmed the Egypt, and more alarmed the Egyptians became. So they became more and more populous, and they filled the country. And frustrated in the ineffectiveness of his first attempt to curtail the rapid growth of the Israelites, Pharaoh then turns to some Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, and tells them, "When you help the Hebrew women give birth, watch as they deliver." And if the baby's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. Now, that's an awful idea. It's not 
totally different than some of the things that we do with partial birth abortions today, but it's, it's that kind of thing. Pharaoh's plan, however, didn't succeed. This plan didn't succeed either because of the midwives. Listen to what it says about them. It says, but because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and says, why have you done this? He demanded, why have you allowed the boys to live? And so they kind of... uh, twisted the truth a little bit and they said well the Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women they deliver really really fast (laughs) and so by the time we got there the babies were already there and so God was good to the Hebrew midwives and the Israelites continued to multiply and grow even more powerful and because the midwives feared God he gave them families of their own these daring women practiced civil disobedience by refusing to follow Pharaoh's orders. They had faith that refused to disobey God regardless of what it would cost them. Their lives were in danger by doing what they did, but they chose instead to obey God. Finally, though, in complete frustration, Pharaoh decides not to be doing anything underground anymore. He goes public and he orders to all of his people to throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but he tells them you can let the girls live. What Pharaoh had previously tried to do in an underhanded manner, he now did openly. And it was into this setting that Moses is born to Amram and Jochebed, and we're told here in Hebrews that by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Amran and Jochebed's faith in this verse is seen in two ways. It's seen in how they viewed their son and it's also seen in how they viewed the king. First of all, it's seen in how they viewed their child. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child. Now, there's an early church historian called, his name is Titus Flavius Josephus. He was a a first-century historian who compiled a history of the Jews, which he titled the Antiquities of the Jews. And in order to write this history... He gathered material from a lot of different sources. The Bible was one of the sources he gathered material from, but he didn't limit it to the Bible. He also studied Jewish tradition. And so his history is drawn from the storehouse of Israel's national memory. And and to be sure, this this isn't uh, like Scripture in that it's it's perfect and it hasn't been embellished in any way. As things were passed on over time, sometimes some of the stories got embellished a little bit. But there is a great deal of insight that comes through studying this early church historian. And in his Antiquities, Josephus has a section on the birth of uh, Moses. And in this section, he describes the growing animosity between the descendants of Abraham and the Egyptians. And he says it this way, and I'm going to slightly paraphrase him as I share out of Josephus because uh, some of his sentences are pretty hard 
to get through. But he says this. He says, The Egyptians grew delicate and lazy, and they gave themselves up to other pleasures, in particular the love of gain. They also became antagonistic toward the Hebrews because they were envious of their prosperity. When they saw how the nation of the Israelites flourished, how they had become prominent because of the wealth they had acquired through their hard work and their virtuous lifestyle, they began to fear the increase was to their own detriment. As a result, they became abusive to the Israelites and contrived many ways of afflicting them. They required that the Israelites engage in in forced labor projects. And while this was happening, one of the sacred scribes in Egypt went and told the king of Egypt that he'd had a vision. And in this vision, he said, there was a child who would be born to the Israelites who, if he were raised, would bring Egyptian dominion low and would raise the Israelites up. He said that this man would excel all men in virtue and obtain glory that would be remembered throughout the ages. Now, this prediction was so feared by the king that according to Josephus, he commanded that they cast every male child which was born by the Israelites into the river and destroy it. Josephus records that Pharaoh said that if any parent should disobey him and try to save their male children, they and their families would be destroyed. And this, he points out, was a severe affliction for the Israelites, for not only were they deprived of their sons, but the parents themselves were obliged to to, to aid in the destruction of their own children. It's in this setting that Moses' parents chose to defy the king, hide their newborn baby. We're told that they did this because they believed their child was no ordinary child. According to Josephus, the king's, because of the king's edict, Amran, Joseph's father, had been crying out to God when he found out his wife was pregnant. And the Lord heard his prayer, and in a dream one night, the Lord communicated with Amram that the child the Egyptians dreaded so much would be his child. And that this child would be the one to deliver the Hebrew nation from the distress they were in, And when Amram awoke and told his wife Jochebed about the dream, they determined to protect the child and hide the child. Now, whether this is completely accurate or not, it is Jewish tradition that was passed on from generation to generation about the birth of Moses. But what we do know to be true is the sacred writings, the scriptures. And in those, we are told that Moses' parents saw something special in this child And they realized he was no ordinary child, so they hid him for three months and protected their child. Now, when the author of Hebrews says that Moses' parents saw the baby was no ordinary child, you know, I thought, what parent doesn't see their baby as no ordinary child? I mean, uh, I've had four of them. None of them are ordinary, I can tell you right now, you know. Uh, And I mean that in a good way. Uh, but, But I believe here... It's more than just that their baby was a beautiful baby. These parents, when they looked at their child, saw their child through the eyes of faith. The author of Hebrews said it was by faith that Moses' parents saw that he was no ordinary child. Now, I I agree with Adrian Rogers, who says every child of God is special. 
Every child, God has a wonderful plan for their lives. He has purposes for them, not just Moses, but every child. You know, he says sometimes our children can be exasperating. A father and his son were once having an argument, and the son said to his father, I didn't really ask to be born in this family. And his father responded, if you had asked, the answer would have been no. You know, sometimes we feel that way as parents, don't we? You know, but, but, but we understand our, our children, especially Christian parents, are a gift from God, and we need to look at them as bundles of great potential <laughs> if God gets a hold of their lives. And that's, that's what Moses' mother and father did. They, they saw in their child someone God was going to use, and they believed that, and they, they trusted God to do that. I believe that God has a plan for our children. You know, I believe, I believe that part of this plan is that he has created our kids in the image of God. And I mean, think, among other things, that means that, that each child has potential to reflect God in some way. That's what it means, I think, partially to be created in the image of God. Paul said it this way. He says, we are the God's masterpiece. We, he has created us anew in Christ so that we can do good things he planned for us a long time ago. I believe God has a plan for our children. I believe that we who were spiritually dead when we're brought to life by this act of regeneration are capable of doing some of the things that God has planned for us and prepared for us. God created each of us to be a unique person, to reflect him in different ways. And God gives us special gifts and talents to serve him. And, and these gifts combined with our individual personalities and our heart's desires and our individual experiences make us uniquely suited to, to uh, fulfill the purposes God has for us. And I believe that we can cooperate with God in this or we can resist God's plan for us. And if we pursue our own desires without regard for God's will for our lives, we end up empty and frustrated and disillusioned with life. But if we partner with God and seek his guidance for our lives, we will discover the joy that comes from living the life God created us to live, no matter where that takes us. Moses' parents looked at their child with the eyes of faith. And because of that, they chose to hide him from Pharaoh. That brings me to the second point, and this point is more clearly spelled out in this passage. You may agree or disagree with what I just shared there but at that point, but, but this second point is really clear. And it tells us that their faith was seen in how they viewed the king as well, not only how they viewed their child. It says, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they weren't afraid of the king's edict. Now, yes, in, in one sense, Moses' parents were afraid. They were real. They, they understood the dangers involved in what they were doing. They understood what it would mean if they got caught hiding their child. If Josephus is right, Pharaoh had said he would destroy the whole families of those who resisted this instruction. And so if Pharaoh's guards, guards caught them, they would be executed for insubordination to the king. So their by faith choice to hide their son exposed the whole family to all kinds of danger. 
You know, imagine uh, those first three months, what it would have been like in this home. Imagine how carefully they had to live. If the baby cried day or night, they had to muffle his cry and try to keep it quiet so people outside their home couldn't hear it. They couldn't risk having their children play with other children in the neighborhood for fear they would let something slip and talk about the baby they had at home. If Pharaoh's police roamed through their neighborhood making sure Pharaoh's orders were carried out to kill the babies, they would have had to sit quietly in terror till they passed through their part of the community. And the choice to obey God always involves risk. But Moses' parents chose to obey anyway and risk the consequences. The point is, they feared God more than they feared the edict of the king. And though Amram and Jochebed certainly understood the king's power and authority, they recognized they had a higher authority to answer to, which was the authority of God. You know, when most people... um, think that if someone in authority over them gives them a command, the command has to be followed. But if that command opposes God's plan, it would be wrong to submit to that authority. Faith in God chooses to obey God over man. You know, if someday our government mandated, as the Chinese government had, that we must abort all babies beyond one in a family... As God's people, we would have to decide at that point, do we obey the government or do we obey God? And if we obey God, it would mean often imprisonment, loss of income, other kinds of hardships, as many Chinese Christians can testify. And often people are reluctant to disobey those in authority over them because they fear the consequences. And even Christians at times will refuse to take a stand for something they know God wants them to take a stand for because they don't want to face the consequences that will come if they do that. There there was an interesting test that was given, a, a study by a social psychologist, Stanley Milgram, on the effect of authority on obedience. And, and in this study, he concluded that people will often obey either out of fear or out of a desire to appear cooperative, even when it requires them to act against their own consciences. And in Milgram's experiment, he illustrates people's reluctance to oppose those who abuse power. For his experiment, he recruited subjects from a lot of different walks of life. Respondents were told the experiment would study the effects of punishment on learning ability. And they were offered cash for participating. So he's kind of bought these people. And although the respondents thought they had an equal chance of either playing the role of a student or the teacher, the process was really rigged so that all the respondents end up playing the teacher and the learner or the student was an actor working with the experimenter. And the teachers were asked to administer increasingly severe shocks to the learners when questions were answered incorrectly. In reality, 
The electric shocks on the learner didn't happen in this experiment. The actors were just only acting like they were getting shocked, but the people thought they were actually shocking the students. And the shock levels were labeled on a control panel from 15 volts to 450 volts. A whole bunch of different switches. And beginning from the lower end, jolt levels were labeled light shock, moderate shock, strong shock, very strong shock, intense shock, extremely intense shock. The next two were danger, severe shock, and past that were simply XXX. (laughs) And in response to the supposed jolts, the learner, the actor, would begin to grunt when they hit 75 He would complain at 120, beg to be released at 150, and plead with increasing intensity throughout the rest. He would let out loud screams when they got to 285 volts, and eventually in desperation, the learner would yell and complain about heart pain, and at some point the actor refused to answer any more questions. And finally, at 330 volts, the the actor would be totally silent. And if any of the teachers got that far, (laughs) uh, it was a pretty shocking thing to see. That's a a pun. (laughs) Did you get that? (laughs) Well, well, the teachers were instructed... uh, to treat silence as an incorrect answer and keep applying the next level of shock. At any point, the teacher, if they hesitated, the experimenter would pressure them and say, you know, you signed up for this. This is part of the experiment. It's necessary for the experiment. You have to continue. We paid you. And, you know, what do you think the average voltage given by the teachers were before they refused to administer any more shocks? Well, what, what percent do you think went up to the full 450 volts? Well, there were a few teachers that refused to continue early on saying this is wrong. But the majority of them, 65%, went all the way to the top. And the, the participants were debriefed after the experiment and showed, they showed a lot of relief finding out they had not really harmed the student like they thought they had. One One cried from emotion, thinking they had actually killed the person. (laughs) Found out they hadn't. And and those who obeyed the instructors against their will justified their actions blaming the instructor. Others even blamed the learner, saying they were so stupid. They deserved to be shocked. There's a theologian uh, by the name of Cornelius Planiga, and he, did, he studied this, and he, he asked these questions after he went through this. He says, why would an ordinary person punish an innocent, protesting, screaming stranger just because he was told to? He says, none of the obedient shockers look like monsters. Most gave no indication that they were particularly aggressive. A number identified themselves as uh, participating in good Christian churches. Virtually all of them, when interviewed, stated their opposition to hurting innocent people Yet what they rejected in principle, they didn't practice. And they did it because someone was wearing a laboratory coat and told them they had to do it. 
Milgram's conclusion was that whatever a person, whenever a person enters a hierarchical structure and views himself under authority, he no longer thinks of himself as a responsible moral subject, but only as an instrument of others. And he comes to see himself not as a person, but an instrument. Not as a center of moral responsibility, but as a tool. And so he doesn't take personal responsibility for his actions. You know, when someone commands a soldier to shoot a civilian in the back of the head, or uh, a plant foreman is commanded to fire a whistleblower, or a secretary is told to destroy evidence, they obey without questioning. And if you ever wonder how could German soldiers carry out the commands to execute millions of Jews, they would tell you that they were simply following orders. The choice to obey God sometimes requires disobeying authorities. The soldiers who executed the babies in Moses' days had to obey orders without taking moral responsibility for what they were doing. And Amran and Jochebed, who chose to disobey man in order to obey God, they too had to make a choice whether they were going to do what they felt God wanted them to do or obey orders. And even if they, by, obeying the or- by refusing to obey the orders, hadn't saved the baby's life, or even if they had cost- it had cost them their life, they would have at least had a life of integrity however short it might have been. These godly parents chose to trust their lives to God rather than be controlled by the fear of man and their confidence in God led them to believe the child was special and they disobeyed the king's decree in order to save their son's life. The choice to obey always involves trust. It always involves courage. Josephus says that when Moses' father understood that they really could not hide the child any longer, and that it was becoming too much of a risk to the whole family, he, fearing that they would be discovered under the king's displeasure and come under the king's displeasure, chose to put the child um, in a basket with his mother, the mother working to do this. And she fixed this basket so it was like a little boat. They took the child and put him in the Nile River, trusting that in some way God was going to keep the child safe in order to secure the promise he had made and the predictions he had made about the child. That's what Josephus says. Well, you know the story. We're told that Jochebed, when she could no longer hide him, got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it. With tar and pitch, she put the baby in the basket and laid it in the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. And for three months, the baby had survived undetected, you, but you can't hide it from the baby forever. And the time came, it was just impossible to hide him any longer. And so these parents, who were parents of two other children too, Miriam and Aaron, were forced to give up their child to God in a very literal way. They took her to him to where Pharaoh's daughter often bathed and hoping that she would have compassion on the child. They put the baby in a basket and placed it in the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. Can you imagine how heart-wrenching that moment must have been for that mother? (laughs) Can you imagine her closing the lid on that basket 
and walking away, trusting her baby to God's care. You know, if you doubt this mother's commitment, don't forget she's already been willing to risk her life and the lives of her whole family to keep this baby alive for three months. And having received her son as a gift from God, she now turns him back over to God in a very literal way, abandoning him to God. I, I, you know, she did have her daughter kind of stay there out of sight, kind of to watch the baby as long as possible. The next thing we see is God's amazing providential care. The baby's sister, who was standing at a distance, watching to see what would happen, saw Pharaoh's daughter come down to bathe at the river, and her attendants walked to the riverbank, and the princess saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her maid to get it and bring it to her, and the princess opened it up, and she saw the baby, and it moved her heart, and the little baby boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him and said, this must be one of the Hebrew children. She's sitting there trying to figure out what to do with this beautiful little baby she's looking at, and then the sister's baby comes out of the, the bushes or wherever she is and says... Um, you know, I could find a Hebrew woman to nurse the baby for you. <laughs> and the princess says, yes, I want to keep this baby. Have, have a Hebrew woman nurse this baby. And so in God's providential care, Moses was taken back to his mother who was asked by the princess to take care of her baby now for the first few years of his life. We can't be sure how long Moses was in his mother's care before he went back to the palace to live there permanently. Probably several years. But during this time, Moses' mother seems to have been able to influence him greatly. She certainly would have informed him about a God who had made promises to Abraham about a land, a people, and a coming Messiah. She would have told him that that God had promised to send a deliverer to her people and bring him out of Egypt. She, she would have told him that there's a coming an ultimate deliverer, a Messiah who's going to come through the line of Abraham. And she talked to him surely about all these things. The mother only had a few years with her child, but in some way she instilled in him a sense of identity that, he would, that would surface later in his life. Now, and I think it's important to say, just in case we misunderstand this, that Moses' parents could do a lot to influence their son, but God had to do even more. They couldn't guarantee the outcome of their son or anything like that. You know, we sometimes think that given the right environment, doing the right things, parents can guarantee the results that they desire to see. If you think you can program your children, if you think that you can take God out of the process of raising your kids, you're sadly mistaken one of our greatest responsibilities as parents is to pray constantly for the lives of our kids. You know, I, I get afraid when I th- see parents who think that they can guarantee certain outcomes. <laughs> One of the most important things you can do is live a living faith in front of your kids. But this morning then, we, we, what we've seen is the importance of taking risks to trust God. Moses' parents were commended for their faith in not obeying the king's command that all the males born to the Hebrew slaves were to be killed. Instead, at the risk of their own lives, they hid 
their child for three months, later to place him in a tiny basket on the river. And God used their courageous act to place their son, the Hebrew of his choice, in the house of Pharaoh. There comes a point in almost every life of faith where a person has to, by faith, relinquish control of their situation to God. There's a young man who was deeply in love with a girl he met while they were still in high school. He loved her and was convinced that she was the girl that God wanted her to, him to marry. They talked about marriage, but they were too young. There's still several years of school that lay ahead of them, so they weren't even formally engaged. They separated and went to different schools, and during the separation, the girl was pursued by an attractive young man. He, too, talked about marriage, and the girl was confused. She was thinking maybe she was going to marry this first guy, and now the second guy came into her life. And in her correspondence with her first boyfriend, her confusion came out. And the first guy talked to her on the phone. Her confusion was confirmed in their conversation. And so the young man who had faith in God did the only thing he knew to do. Believing that she was the girl God wanted for him, he communicated to her in writing that he loved her, he wanted her to be his wife, but until God convinced her of the same thing, she would not hear from him again. And then he prayed something like this. He prayed, God, I think she's the one you want for me, but you'll have to convince her. I leave her in your hands to guide her emotions as well as mine. And he gave her the space she needed. He stopped communicating with her. He didn't call. He didn't write. He placed his future relationship within God's hands. Faith always requires a time where we release things to God and quit trying to control it ourselves. Well, three months later, he heard from the girl, and three years later, they were married. And yet he, there had to be that relinquishment of the thing he hoped for to God, trusting God to fulfill his promises. There's always a risk in faith. You know, what do you think God wants you to trust to his care? What do you think God wants you to surrender to him? Where do you need to be more courageous in order to follow God? Where do you need to obey God not fearing the outcome, trusting something to God instead of trying to control it? Those are the kinds of questions that surface when I read this verse, and I hope as you leave here this morning, those are the questions that you'll be wrestling with in your own life as well. And when you get to your life groups, talk about those questions together and talk about what it means to take a risk in faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we just look at Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed, we're very thankful that we live at a different time and we're not going to face some of the same challenges they face, but we all face challenges to our faith in some way. Times we have to relinquish control of something to you that we so desperately want. And yet, Lord, we pray that you will guide us and, and, and keep us in the middle of your plan as we surrender to you. Help us to have faith to do what's frightening at times, faith to have courage to obey you rather than to be perceived of as good in the eyes of man. 
Lord, help us to be people of faith. We've been talking about faith for a number of weeks now. Help us to be people who have faith that manifests itself in so many different ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.